This is Jessica. And this is Kelly. And this is the Chasing Brighter podcast. I'm very excited about how my hair looks great. You know what else makes your hair look great, Jess? Washing it. (laughs) The um, Warrior Strong Wellness Collagen Peptides and Bone Broth. I've noticed a huge difference with just the health of my hair. I just have naturally thin hair. So Collagen's so good for hair, nails, skin. Check out warriorstrongwellness.com for their collagen peptides and bone broth or their multi-collagen protein powder. If you use the Chasing Brighter code, all one word, Chasing Brighter, you can get 10% off of your purchase. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on Chasing Brighter. Today, we have Angel Uribe joining us, and she is a moderation management coach and owner of Stages of Change Center. Angel, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So ready to start having the conversation. I I have this conversation with people so often, one-to-one, Um and I, and I find that the more that I speak into it, the more I realize how important it really is to start um, just conversations in general. People are so skittish about having conversations around chemical health and, um, and mental health. And, you know, all of that is changing and evolving, but you still find like on the ground, I, it's, it's something that's still very new for people. And so creating space for even just the dialogue is so, so important. And it's, it's occurring to me more and more um, as I start speaking to more audiences and to more individuals about this. So I'm super excited that I'm here today. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. We feel the same. I mean, I think I, I have a hard time dealing with my, um, emotions. And, um, a lot of people, I think just naturally don't want to think about the tough, have those tough conversations. And then, you know, I think we've learned that I've learned, especially, I mean, just you, you're the, you're professional at this, but, um, just that the more you have those, it is more rewarding, you know, you kind of have to push through some of those, but it's, it's good stuff. It's, it's doing the work in some ways too. So, yeah. Yeah. So would you mind telling us just kind of a quick, um, quick summary about what, what your background is and um, what you do at um, the center? Sure. So my background, I have about 24 years now, collective um, work experience, clinical work experience in chemical and behavioral health. Um, for the past 12 years, I have owned Stages of Change Center, and uh, this is my, my own um, uh, kind of exploration into what it means to go up upstream a little bit where um, providing intervention services is concerned around chemical health. And so Stages of Change Center started um, just as uh, providing some alcohol and drug education to individuals who had gotten into you know, some trouble, um, maybe like a DWI situation or a disorderly conduct or just some sort of um, first risk indicators that were coming through in the legal system because originally my um, career began as a probation parole officer. Mm. That was what was most familiar to me. And so I started out um, with my licensing. I was able to do chemical health assessments and, um, and that alcohol and drug education. And over the years, what I realized was, is that I was providing moderation management um, interventions for people because 
at the point that they were coming to me, their lives were not unmanageable. For, for all intents and purposes, as a matter of fact, their lives were pretty functional. It's just that their relationship with alcohol or mood altering chemicals was starting to deteriorate in terms of, you know, it was becoming more unhealthy. But as you know, we know is that people can can kind of ride that line for a really long time where that relationship is becoming unhealthy with their their substance of choice, but it's not they're not seeing those effects in major life areas. And so there's not a, a recognition or even, you know, anybody necessarily speaking into them that maybe they need to take a look at that. And so what what I eventually started to realize was that a going upstream is a much better approach, right? Than waiting for someone's life to become unmanageable, mm-hmm. which is where I worked early in the system. But then as I as I really grew into the business and started expanding services, um, I started to to think about what it might look like to do um, a program around mindful drinking for balanced living, right? Where you even go a little bit further uh, upstream and start talking to people before any legal issues even start to present. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where I'm at today is I'm still providing all of those early intervention services um, for individuals who are coming through with some legal issues. But I also am starting to have conversations and work with individuals who are saying, you know, I think I need to take a look at this, which is just so wonderful to see people reaching out and asking for that. Yes, and I definitely want to get into that. I know Kelly and I talk a lot about health and longevity. So we've been talking about uh, alcohol moderation, but I want to go back a little bit um, when you are working with people, um, are you saying for the most part, if I'm getting this correctly, not, not in necessarily the mindful drinking for balanced living program, is that someone that you would say does not have dependence issues, but someone that, um, definitely doesn't have a good relationship with alcohol? Right. Well, that's, that's the thing, right? Is that when you start to see a DWI situation, you start to look at it and say, well, what's, you know, what is going on here? What is the bigger um, issue around the drinking that's leading to that high risk behavior? But it, it's not the case that everybody has um, a clinical diagnosis to be made around their chemical use. And that, as a matter of fact, 90% of heavy drinkers don't meet medical criteria for substance abuse disorder. And so, you know, when we're thinking about that, you, you say, okay, I see this risk is showing up in your life. There's a little, there's something else going on here. And we need to explore that a little bit more. But the idea is, is that we don't want to wait until they're diagnosable, until there's something that's, you know, um, being lost in their lives. You know, a DWI situation is already, you know, pretty significant in its own right, not only because of the threat of harm to self and others, but you're also talking about surrendering one of the things that we hold as the most dear, which is civil liberties and, and freedoms, right? So if you're exchanging those things for the way that you're using alcohol, there's something that needs to be looked at there, if that makes sense. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a dependency issue. It's just that there's a, there's a risk behavior that could lead you into more um you know, spaces where there's more collateral damage or more likelihood of, of more um, loss or unintended consequence in the future. 
yeah. I can see that in that. I think any, you know, many of us drank and especially in college where, you know, you didn't always make good choices and, you know, in some ways it seems as though some of us got luckier than others in terms of, you know, getting, getting caught, let's say, and doing something that you shouldn't have been doing. Um, and it's definitely not something anybody needs to do. And I think, um, it's interesting hearing you kind of describe it that way too, right? Is it's just, it's not necessarily, it's the average person per se, most of the time who might have made a bad choice Mm-hmm. And it it could have made more worse choices, or it could have been the beginning of going down a different path. One of the things that I find so often is that a lot of people carry their early uh, relationship behaviors with alcohol into the next stage of their life. Um, you know, when we're younger, we don't have a lot of things that that we could that we see that we could lose right so when we're out there we're going to live 100 years we've got all you know everything is is going to be fine and and we're just enjoying life but as we grow into our lives and we start getting married and we start buying homes and you know having careers a lot of times everything else in our life changes but because there's no real exploration into the relational dynamics that we formed with alcohol a lot of times we keep drinking the way that we did when we were young and carefree because one of the things that i find is how how difficult it is to even just sit and dialogue with people about their chemical health because there is that fear of judgment even if you don't think you have a chemical use issue It's a conversation that's a little bit, you know, um, uh, off-putting for some people. Even when they get into some trouble, they're still a little bit guarded about having to to tackle that conversation, right? It's like alcoholic or not alcoholic, right? It's like either you have a major problem or not. It's like there's no middle ground. And I think about, like, we're talking about early drinking, and it's like at a conversation with a friend, and it's cute and funny. You're in your twenties, haha, you know, you're drinking, but then all of a sudden, like you're saying, then you have responsibilities, job, whatever. And then it's not cute anymore, but there's no, there's no dialogue about it. There's no programming about it. It's just like, you're all this sudden supposed to have your shit together and not do that anymore. Right. And when, and then when things start to happen, we start looking for all the outside reasons first, right? We, in giving credit where credit is due, is just something we're not ready. We're not ready to do yet. We don't want to touch that because a lot of times it's tied itself into our social networks and into our business networks. And, you know, that's the one thing about alcohol is that it's everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And because of the fear that is oftentimes attached to, you know, having to explore it, it's like, well, what does that mean? Do I have a problem or don't I? Because those are the, really the only two options that are often taught or presented, right? Um, and so people would rather just say, oh, it was a one-off. It was a mistake. It was, you know, all of those things. And that's very well possible, but it's it's worth exploring. But people need a safe place to do that. They need to feel like it's safe enough to have the conversation without feeling like someone's going to come in behind you and say, okay, that means you have to quit. You cannot do that. Because the threat to the adjustment is is pretty serious for people. Yeah. Even if they're not chemically dependent or, you know, in a, um, a struggling with severe substance abuse. 
Yeah. I, I think that that for my, I'm only trying to think about myself, right. And my own thoughts about like how, you know, if I never had a drink again, it seems like, uh, something that I would have a hard time coming around to, um, which is a weird thing because we just came back from vacation in Mexico and we, we went to an all-inclusive mm. and the whole family and my husband, and we don't, we've really cut down in terms of drinking, especially during the week and just really noticed how better we feel trying to be more mindful. Like you were talking about in terms of making those choices. And then you're at this beautiful resort, you know, in a tropical location and it's 11 o'clock and, you know, the pina coladas are flowing. And we were just talking about how, like, why is that? Why is there like a culture, even when you're on vacation that, and this whole concept of all you can drink, yeah. right. This all inclusive and like where that came about and like, why, you know, you can eat and drink everything when you're on vacation, sort right. of a thing. It's kind of messed up yeah. <laughs> in that way. Yes. And then you come home tired and burnt and and it takes you like a week of extra vacation to recover. Right. Um, it is such a cultural thing. And, yeah. and what is so, you know, what I attribute to that sometimes is that the idea of taking a vacation is, oh, I can let go and I can just relax and I can, you know, let go of the stress and the anxieties of everyday life and the worries. And unfortunately, that culturally we've tied the idea of, you know, eating what you want and drinking what you want to, to being that experience, to making that experience happen for you. Right. As though you can't just go in there and be about the space you're in and, and find that, that relaxation. One of my, um, my, um, posts that I did recently for, for, um, my TikTok and Instagram is, was talking about, you know, have you ever gone on vacation? And when you get to where you're going, one of the first things you look around for is the bar. You know, where can I, find, you know, just get this relaxation started. And my one of my tips for, for individuals in that case is before you do that, it's okay to go and have some drinks while you're on vacation and enjoy yourself. But you're more likely to moderate your use if you take like 30 minutes before you go do any of that to find a quiet space and recenter yourself. Because sometimes I feel like vacation even becomes a frenzied thing of its own, mm-hmm. right? And so what we're doing constantly is on overdrive and that fight or flight response is always going. And what happens is when we are feeling extreme in any way, shape or form, this is one of those like traps people fall into where they'll end up drinking a little bit more than what they would if they were already calm and relaxed or, you know, because what you're trying to achieve is that ultimate relaxation. But unfortunately, if you came in hot, you know, cause you're, you're on overdrive that tends to lend to having a little bit more than maybe what you would if you came in and just kind of got recentered and relaxed and, approached your vacation from the standpoint of, I want to leave here feeling my best and feeling refreshed. Mm -hmm. That can include a few drinks, but we think the drinks are going to be what gets us there. When in reality, we need to get there and then you can have, you know, Mm -hmm. some drinks and moderation and start changing the way we perceive what that all inclusive (laughs) option is really about. Explore more. Like, I guess, Wow. Wow. <laughs> Why or how um, uh, 
is is drinking to unwind kind of dangerous for our health and well-being and i know like for me as a as a mental health therapist when i talk to my clients about what are we doing for self-care what are we doing to relax and they'll say i have two glasses of wine every night to relax it's not like i'm like oh you're an alcoholic but it's like that why bothers me like and so so i would love to explore that more about about um unwinding like drinking to unwind being dangerous i guess well the reason why it's it can be so um dangerous for people is because the more that your drinking is tied to your interpersonal sense of self, like your interpersonal self, the more risky it becomes because it's almost as though you associate it as I need this in order to experience that. Mm. Right. And so if the, if the goal of, 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 you know, doing some coaching or counseling is to help someone to get into a, a state of more relaxation or to let go of some things so that they can relax or to work through some anxieties. That is a, a wonderful tool for people to help them sort of achieve that inner peace and peace of mind. But if using alcohol is necessary for the for the client or for the person to experience what they believe is what relaxation is, that sets up a trap in your mind because over time they're going to develop tolerance to those two glasses. So in order to achieve that relaxation effect, now I've got to do two and a half glasses or three glasses. And next thing you know, oh boy, that bottle is gone. And I didn't, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, I had consumed that much that, you know, last night or whatever have you. And the more that that grows, of course, it starts to create a loop effect, right? If you drink the entire bottle of wine, you're going to wake up tomorrow having borrowed from tomorrow last night. And to, to you know, now the day demands 100% of you, but you're lagging with about 80% because of the alcohol taking it out of you the night before while you were seeking relaxation. And so now, through the day, the world and life is demanding 100% of you, but you can only bring 80%. So when you get to five o'clock, you cannot wait for that next glass of wine to bring relaxation, right? Because you've already felt depleted through the day, if that, if that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so the danger in that is that it starts out and it works. As a, and that's what I tell my clients all the time. As a coping strategy, alcohol and even drugs work 100% of the time. That's the problem because they lend us to this idea that it's easy, it's accessible, we can we can use it for the purpose of getting immediate release of the distress, discomfort, or dis-ease that we're in. And the more we do that, the more it sort of like becomes its own its own loop of of um, risk for us, right? And so when you say the why behind it. Um, I would I would encourage my clients like if they describe their relationship with alcohol as being a fringe item, right, that they just use on occasion, then there should be no tie back or need for it to accomplish something that they should be able to accomplish with natural interventions. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you say borrowing for tomorrow, I mean, are you are you talking about the negative impact on sleep? 
Yes, 100%. Um, so one of the things that we know is that biologically, your body will not go into REM sleep if it has a mood altering chemical in it. It cannot because the body is most vulnerable during REM sleep. And so when you have, especially with alcohol, you consume a central nervous system depressant, the, the, the second layer of you, which is the autonomous system, is not going to allow the body to go into that deep state of rest because it, its job is to keep you alive through the night, right? And so we often don't realize it, but it's kind of like when you go in for surgery, they say they put you to sleep, but what we understand is I'm not actually sleeping, I'm sedated. And that's the same thing with alcohol and why you wake up the next day and you don't feel refreshed and you feel lethargic and you feel like empty of energy is because you were, you were, you were sedated, but you weren't sleeping. You weren't getting the healing sleep. So the body wakes up the next day feeling depleted right. before those it even starts. All those benefits <laughs> of sleep, you know, Kelly and I, um, we did a book club on, on why we sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. And he, um, like Kelly read, it was almost like, Hey, I have this brand new magic pill that helps you feel better, lose weight, um, helps your health, increases your life, but all this stuff are in its sleep and, and it's free. free. Yeah. And it's right. free. And we need right. to get all of those phases. And I, I think that's too, like even sleeping pills and all of those things are just sedating you. And if you can't get yourself to sleep naturally, you're not going to, um, and, and that's like a core of our health and well-being is, is good sleep. I think what I'm surprised at is the number of people who clearly aren't listening to our podcast because they would know all that, but um, how I just, I am now at a point where I thought it, was sort of common knowledge in some way that alcohol impacts sleep. And um, I had lunch recently with um, a colleague who I hadn't seen in years and we were talking about sleep and he was saying how um, he just doesn't sleep well. And I was like, I'm obsessed with sleep. I have a Fitbit. I track my sleep and I know the times where I sleep like crap. And I know usually it's tied to alcohol. I was like, so I really cut down on my alcohol consumption. And he was like, Oh man, he was like, I didn't know that he was like, I have, you know, a beer a night. And I was like, you have a beer every single night. He was like, ah, maybe two, maybe two beers every single night. And he's like, he, he's very healthy and very active. And I was like, wow. Like I, there's, because there's now, I feel like there's like conflicting information, but you know, in a lot of ways it was always like one or two drinks a night is okay to have. And so it's like, everyone thinks it's okay to have you know, that much alcohol and they don't say all the things that it impacts later on. That's absolutely one of the, the things is like, it's half truths and misinformation that I think are creating the most um, risk for people, whether it's, we're just talking about general health and wellness, or, you know, you're just, you're narrowing in on their chemical health in particular, right? It's, it's one of those things that most of us will begin a relationship with and have longer than we will be with our love of our lives. Right. Um, but it's something that I find that people go through and don't really understand 
the implications of that dynamic and that relationship that they have to alcohol. So when we're young, of course, we can go out and maybe tie, you know, a little bit extra to the wagon that night and we'll bounce up the next day and we'll just like mm-hmm. rock it out because our systems are as efficient as they're ever going to be. Mm-hmm. And it can withstand things like not getting all the sleep that we need. Is it good for us? No, of course, not at any age. But we get into this belief structure that that it's okay because we were able to do it. We were able to handle it. And then as we get a little bit older and our bodies and their minds start working differently and the demands of life start changing and shifting, we don't really take the time to explore, well, what is the implication of having alcohol on a weeknight when I've got to get up and perform tomorrow as a mom or as a business owner or, you know, uh, as a professional. And, and it, it's almost, it's so insidious because the last thing you think it is that you need to look at is the alcohol because we've decided that it helps us, right? To manage the stress indicators that come in from all the things that we're doing as mothers and professionals and working women and uh, and as family members and all that that stuff. And so um, this is the one of the reasons why I think the conversation is so important because even most people I find, if you just can talk to them and help them, like speaking to your friend and saying, hey, listen, I've been tracking this and this is what I found, puts a seed into their into their minds to go, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I just left the alcohol alone on Monday through Thursday and just see if, because honestly, even if you can get back four nights of REM sleep in a week, you're improving. And to me, it's always, it's always an approach of progress over perfection when it comes to our health and wellness, right? Um, One of the concerns people have for me is, well, so what you're saying is I can't drink at all because it's not good for me. And so basically I have to give up my fun and my social life and the way that I do things. And I think that that is a flawed approach to it as well. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is that with information, just like people can change their nutrition and, you know, their sleep habits and, you know, their water intake and stuff with, with education, information and conversation, they can start to explore what it might look like to balance out their relationship with alcohol so that they can experience more of the good things, right? More restfulness, more energy more confidence because a lot of people will sit and silently debate about whether or not their alcohol use is okay or not okay. Um, and just bring in, bring an alcohol moderation coach into the room and everybody's going to be questioning themselves. I find because mm-hmm. they're like, so what do you think? Do you think I'm okay? <laughs> when I hear like what you're saying too, is kind of tapping into yourself. And I know Kelly and I were talking about that. Um, I, I think if I have, and it has to be like particular, I'm I'm starting to kind of investigate what alcohol I feel better with, if that makes sense, right? Oh, maybe it's red wine or maybe it's a vodka soda. And then I feel, you know, but it's like, to me, it's like after two drinks, I don't feel good. It's very weird. Like, I think I get inflamed and my nose gets stuffy. And so I'm like, oh, I don't really feel 
um, great after two drinks, right? That's kind of just tapping into myself and thinking about that. But also if I go for the third drink, then I start making poor decisions, right? Where you're like, oh, YOLO, forget it. Like, let's go, let's go get pizza. Let's go. You know what I mean? Like, I just think that I just start making poor decisions all around. <laughs> that is absolutely a phenomenon experienced by many. I you know, it's so interesting that you say that because our bodies do try to tell us, um, hey, this is at the end of the day, it's it's a poison to our body. Right. And mm -hmm. and so we you know, we understand we take risks every day with, you know, food choices and and, you know, air and different things that we're doing. But the the thing is, the body wants to communicate with you what it can tolerate. Right. And I always tell people is even if you push your limits and your body can tolerate more, you should never consider that non-consequential use, right? The stuff he knows is an indication that it's, it's activated basically your, your histamines in your body, um, right? So that's why some people will get that stuff he knows effect uh, after consuming certain beverages of alcohol. But I like what you said, Jessica, about exploring which ones you can enjoy in moderation that don't seem to have as much of a negative impact on your body, right? Because that is about that self-discovery effect. The, I, alcohol is not the problem, right? It's why we're using it and how we're using it that determines the degree of problems it's going to or is likely to cause for us. And so if you are on that journey and you're willing to explore, this for me works, I can have a, two drinks, I can enjoy myself, I can enjoy a conversation, I can recall all of the events, I can go to bed that night and I can feel like I got adequate enough sleep, um, I enjoyed the, the evening before and the day after. That's kind of what I tell my clients is a really important um, measure of how you're doing, right? If you decide that drinking in moderation is possible for you and you can stay consistent in that and kind of find that that sweet spot, um, that's the ideal goal, right? It's not about either or, or, you know, I, you, you can either have nothing and be healthy or, you know, you have what you have and, and you suffer all the consequences of it. Um, that's the good part about being able to explore it with, with, without the judgment, right? Um, so I tell people a lot, I say, get curious, get curious with yourself, how much allows me to still show up and honor the things in my life that I say matter. Because I think that that is so key to setting the limit, because what you're talking about is what is my limit, right? And sometimes what people decide their limit is, is, well, when does the alcohol run out? Or when do, you know, when do I fall to sleep? Or what, you know, what does that look like? Um, and the, the idea of looking into your own personal life and saying, you know, what I have found is this type of drink in this amount allows me to enjoy myself in moderation, but not go so far that I start compromising the things in my life that I say matter, like making healthy food choices or getting a, a good amount of sleep or, you know, just ma maintaining my relationships um, and that kind of thing. 
I like that. I almost wonder even like what, you know, I noticed more and more restaurants, right. Are offering a lot of alcohol-free cocktails and part of even going out is just that fun of having a fancy drink. So I even wonder about like even challenging myself if I went out with friends or even my husband, if I just didn't drink alcohol for dinner and just had those other drinks. Cause is it, you know, I've been trying to think like, do I even, I'm not drinking that much. So it's like, I don't have this drive to like feel buzzed, let's say, right. Kind of a thing. It's just like having a drink in my hand. So what if I did not have anything with alcohol and how would that make me feel? Um, because I think my personality is probably going to be solid either way. Right. Jess. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Of course, of course. Uh, one of my favorite drinks um, when I go to the bar that doesn't have alcohol in it is like this really great concoction of like orange juice and cranberry juice and a little Seven Up and a little splash of lime, and it looks it looks amazing. And I love the taste of it because it is so refreshing. And so I have done that over the years, where I will um, I'll go in and order it. Nobody knows that there's no alcohol in it. Mm -hmm. It's just that I will go up and I'll just order it because. At that point, I want to make sure that, again, I'm enjoying the entire evening. I can recall. I can still show up and be the parent that my kids deserve me to be, tomorrow, you know, tomorrow. And um, and it just feels better, right? It takes a minute to adjust yourself in those environments. But honestly, most, most of the struggle we have around our social environments is internal. And so if we will just sort of explore what it means to rethink about, you know, power. Because you said, you know, you're not even out there chasing like this feeling or this buzz anymore. It's just, well, this is where I'm at. And in this social situation and the psychology of our brains right. will bring back to us like, oh, well, I should have a drink in this moment or, you know, whatever have you. You are so right that even just having a opportunity to have something fruity or a little bit more, um, you know, pleasing to the palate can be really all that you need. Because most people would tell you that alcohol isn't even that something they enjoy the taste of when yeah. they really think about it. Right. Oh, um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, for my 40th, um, we drove, my husband, and I drove to Louisville and we were going to hit the bourbon trail <laughs> and I was so excited and I don't drink bourbon that much, but like we went to Buffalo trace and then you get the tasting room. And I was like, huh. I think even the night before we did like a whiskey flight and I was like, huh, this is tough, man. And then we go to Buffalo trace. And I think like after day two, I was like, this is terrible. Like I can't drink this. It's not enjoyable to me. I you're sipping something that is so strong and I don't mean to, some people like it or whatever, but I just realized like, I don't like this here. I made this big deal about going to the bourbon trail. And I'm like, this isn't even something that I found it to be really not enjoyable at all. Yes. Oh, that is it's so true because what we're looking for is an experience, right? Yeah. So when, when you talk about the bourbon trail, you're like, oh, that that sounds amazing. And and well, what do you do if you're on the bourbon trail? This is what we're doing, right? But it's it does kind of come into that moment of realization. It's like most of the time we drink for the effect, not for the taste on our palate, right? We grow accustomed. I have never met a person who told me the first time they drank beer, they loved it. 
right? Most people will tell you, I didn't like the taste of alcohol. I didn't, you know, and they'll have this whole story assigned to it, but they also have the why I went back and did it again story is because of how they felt with it and the way that it brought about that feeling of relaxation or that, that buzz feeling. And so they will grow accustomed to or acquire a taste for it. But when you really start dialing back and saying, I want to enjoy things that are pleasing to my palate, a lot of times in those social situations, if that's your if that's your goal, alcohol isn't really, it doesn't really fit necessarily into the whole evening or it doesn't need to, right? And if we're honest, um, you really don't taste it after three drinks anyway. Yeah. If you think yeah. about what are you yes. tasting, you only really taste the first couple because just like everything else, your taste buds numb out after <laughs> after the third drink as well. And so just sort of the idea of exploring what it looks like to think differently about the relationship of the when, the why, the how um, we are involving ourselves with alcohol can, can bring about profound shifts that are um, really very healthy for us, right? And they allow us to let that relationship evolve with us as we grow and as we, um, you know, move into later stages of our, of our lives. You know, thank you so much for taking the time to join us yes. today. That's so good. I know we could talk forever <laughs> because this is so fascinating. Yes. Well, I thank you guys so much for giving me an opportunity to be here today. It's It's been um, just amazing. So thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about Angel or her programs, you can check her out on Facebook at Angel Uribe, that's U-R-I-B-E, Alcohol Moderation Coach, or on Instagram at Mindful Moderation with Angel. Thanks for listening and joining us today. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Chasing Brighter or on our blog, ChasingBrighter.com.